Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And today is going to be a great day for you. And although the weather might not be the greatest where you're at right now, it's not going to deter you from seeking the things that you want in your life. Today, you will gather love, you will gather harmony, and hopefully a little knowledge from moments. Today is the day that you realize that looking back only gives you regrets and that looking forward gives you opportunities. So let's slip into darkness and do a little traveling on America's highways. No other road has captured the imagination and the essence of American dream quite like Route 66. The idea behind the mother load was to connect urban and rural America from Chicago all the way to Los Angeles, crossing eight states and three time zones with more hope than resources. Dust Bowl migrants and others escaping poverty caused by the Great Depression could motor west on Route 66 in search of a better life. This 2,440-mile road of dreams, speckled with romantic and unconventional attractions, symbolized a pathway to easier times. It was one of the few U.S. highways laid out diagonally and it cut across the country like a shortcut to freedom. But though the message went out to all Americans, it was really meant only for white Americans. Just one year before construction on Route 66 began, the Chicago Tribune suggested in an editorial on August 29, 1925, that black people avoid recreational sites altogether. Quoted as saying, we should be doing no service to the Negroes if we did not point out that a very large section of the white population, the presence of a Negro, however well behaved, among white bathers is an irritation. This may be a regrettable fact to the Negroes, but it is nevertheless a fact and must be reckoned with. The Negroes could make a definite contribution to good race relationships by remaining away from beaches where their presence is resented. My friends, the new meaning of getting your kicks on Route 66, right? Not only were we shut out of pools and beaches, Black Americans also couldn't eat, sleep, or even get gas at most white-owned businesses. To avoid the humiliation of being turned away, they often traveled with portable toilets, bedding, gas cans, and ice coolers. Even Coca-Cola machines had white customers only printed on them. In 1930, 
44 of the 89 counties that lined Route 66 were all white communities known as sundown towns, places that banned black people from entering city limits after dark. Some posted signs that read, Nigger, don't let the sun set on you here. Route 66 started out in Illinois, a state that itself had nearly 150 sundown towns. The road certainly did not mean freedom for everyone, and it bore witness to some of the nation's worst act of racial terrorism. If you listen to one of my earlier episodes, we talked about sundown towns. And today, politicians and television anchors speak of terrorism as though it's a new phenomenon in the United States. Terrorism is not new. And to think so is a grievous slight to the nation's native people, to its multitude of immigrants, and to its legions of black Americans, all of whom have been terrorized for calling America home. In fact, even before Route 66 was officially connected and enshrined, the roads that would come to form it linked one atrocity to the next. Springfield, Missouri, would soon become the birthplace of Route 66. Although the road starts out in Chicago, the route was officially designated as 66 in Springfield. During a grisly lynching on Easter weekend, a vigilante white mob dragged Horace Duncan and Fred Coker to the town square, hanged them, burned their bodies while thousands watched, and then distributed their body parts among the crowd as keepsakes. Every mile on Route 66 was a minefield. Businesses with three Ks in the title, such as Cozy Cottage Camp or the Clean Country Cottages, were codes for the Ku Klux Klan and served only white customers. And of course, we had to avoid sundown towns such as Edmond, Oklahoma. In the 1940s, the Royce Cafe, located right on Route 66, proudly pronounced on his postcards that Edmond was a good place to live. 6,000 live citizens, no Negroes. For many, the vulnerability of the road meant always having a plan a cover story, or even a disguise. One popular safety precaution, a chauffeur's hat. Black motorists who drove nice cars were especially susceptible to regular harassment by law enforcement. In 1930, the black columnist George Schroeder wrote, Blacks who drove expensive cars often offended white sensibilities, and some black people kept an older model so as not to give the dangerous impression of being above themselves. For nearly 30 years, a guide called the Negro Motorist Green Book provided African Americans with advice on safe places to eat and sleep when they traveled through Jim Crow era United States. A quote from the Negro Motorist Green Book introduction in their 1948 edition read, There will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. 
This is when we as a race will have true equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for all of us to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please without embarrassment. In the pages that followed, they provided a rundown of hotels, guest houses, service stations, drugstores, taverns, barbershops, and restaurants that were known to be safe ports of call for African-American travelers. The Green Book listed establishments in segregationist strongholds such as Alabama and Mississippi, but its reach also extended from Connecticut to California. Any place where its readers might face prejudice or danger because of their skin color. With Jim Crow still looming over much of the country, a motto on the guide's cover also doubled as a warning. Carry your green book with you. You may need it. First published in 1936, the green book was the brainchild of a Harlem-based postal carrier named Victor Hugo Green. Like most African Americans in the mid-20th century, Green had grown weary of the discrimination blacks faced whenever they ventured outside of their neighborhoods. Rates of car ownership had exploded in the years before and after World War II. But the lure of the interstate was also fraught with risk for African Americans. White-only policies meant that black travelers often couldn't find a safe place to eat and sleep, and black sundown town municipalities had banned blacks after dark were scattered across the country. As the forward of the 1956 edition of the Green Book noted, the white traveler has had no difficulty in getting accommodations, but with the Negro it has been different. Inspired by earlier books published for Jewish audiences, Green developed a guide to help black Americans indulge in travel without fear. The first edition of his Green Book only covered hotels and restaurants in the New York area but he soon expanded its scope by gathering field reports from fellow postal carriers and offering cash payments to readers who sent in useful information. By the early 1940s, the Green Book boasted thousands of establishment from across the country, all of them either Black-owned or verified to be non-discriminatory. The 1949 guide encouraged hungry motorists passing through Denver to stop for a bite at the Dew Drop Inn. Those looking for a bar in Atlanta area were told to try the Yeamen Sportsman's Smoke Shop or Butler's in Richmond, Virginia. Rest a bit was the go-to spot for a ladies' beauty parlor. The Green Book's listings were organized by state and city with the vast majority located in major metropolises, such as Chicago and Detroit. More remote places had fewer options. Alaska only had 
a lone entry in the 1960 guide. But even in cities with no black-friendly hotels, the book often listed addresses of homeowners who were willing to rent rooms. In 1954, it suggested that visitors to tiny Roswell, New Mexico, should stay at the home of a Mrs. Mary Collins. Thanks to a sponsorship deal with Standard Oil, the Green Book was available for purchase at Esso gas stations across the country. Though largely unknown to whites, it eventually sold upwards of 15,000 copies per year and was widely used by black business travelers and vacationers alike. In his memoir, A Colored Man's Journey Through the 20th Century Segregated America, Earl Hutchison Sr. described purchasing a copy in preparation for a road trip he and his wife took from Chicago to California. The Green Book was the Bible of every Negro highway traveler in the 1950s and early 1960s, he wrote. You literally didn't leave home without it. In offering advice to its readers, the Green Book adopted a pleasant and encouraging tone. It usually avoided discussing racism in explicit terms. One article simply noted that the Negro travelers' inconveniences are many. But as the years passed, it began to champion the achievements of the civil rights movement. In one of its last editions in 1963-64, it included a special year rights, briefly speaking, features that listed state statutes related to discrimination in travel accommodations. The Negro is only demanding what everyone else wants the article stress, what is guaranteed all citizens by the Constitution of the United States. Hugo Green died in 1960 after more than two decades of publishing his travel guide. His wife, Alma, took over as editor and continued to release the Green Book in updated editions for a few more years. But just as Green had once hoped, the march of progress eventually helped push it toward obsolescence. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act finally banned racial segregation in restaurants, theaters, hotels, parks, and other public places. Just two years later, the Green Book quietly ceased publication after nearly 30 years in print. So there you have it, my friends. The infamous Route 66 and the Green Book Guide you must have if you traveled it in the early days. I think about the contribution this postal worker gave to our people. That's living proof that everybody can do something and you do not have to be a road scholar to do it. This man made it possible for African-Americans in the North who wanted to travel South to see their families an easy thing. 
and perhaps even saved lives. Mr. Victor Green, I thank you. I thank you for your contribution to Black America and your story and your legacy will live on. Rest in peace, my brother. Rest in peace because you were there when Black America needed you the most. What a bit of history, my friends. Well, that music tells me that it is once more that time. But before I leave, I want to leave you with a little something. When black people are killed, we need to say something. When the ugly head of racism pops up, we need to say something. Because when we say nothing, we are also saying something. Until next time, it has been my honor.